The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Allion Herbicide from Bayer. Residual control that goes the distance. Cleaner, longer, Allion. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Weather, water, and natural disasters top the New Year's list of worries for California's farmers. The first Sierra snow measurements of 2018 have been taken, and we have the numbers. Will the freezing temperatures throughout the east, south, and midwest play havoc with future commodity prices for California's farmers? We look at the weather's impact on farms and ranches across the country. The first agricultural monetary damage totals are in from Southern California's massive Thomas Fire. And there's a move afoot by the feds to transfer more Central Valley Project water to farmers in the central and southern San Joaquin Valley. We have those stories and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. What farmers and all Californians want to know right now is, well, how's that snowpack doing up in the Sierra? Well, they took the first measurements of 2018 a few days ago. Frank Gerke is a longtime Department of Water Resources snow surveyor, and he marched out to Phillips Station with his measuring devices. He was wearing street shoes. That might give you a clue of what he found. At this location, we actually did find snow to measure. We had an average depth of 1.3 inches a water content of 0.4 inches, representing 3% of its long-term average. Climate change increasingly is changing the mountain snowfall equation. Historically, up to 60% of Californians' water supply each year starts out as snowfall in the Sierra. However, Grant Davis, who's the DWR director, says it's early. And uh, we're obviously hopeful that there'll be more snow the next time we come out here in the February, March, and April snowmelt surveys. And there's still plenty of water in the reservoirs. Near-record rainfall last winter snapped the historic drought, filling reservoirs and sending many rivers over their banks. Reservoirs remain at 110% of normal storage thanks to last year's wet winter. California farmers are carefully watching the cold snap hitting the Midwest and the East Coast this week, especially concerning three commodities, cattle and calves, wheat, and citrus. If it is a prolonged cold snap, it could affect commodity prices, even for California's farmers. What about cattle and calves? USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says there's going to be more costs involved for ranchers in the Midwest and the East. We've got the impact on livestock, most pronounced across the northern plains in the Midwest, where we've seen multiple days of sub-zero to much below zero temperatures. And we've got a lot of snow on the ground as well. So there is uh, the requirements for supplemental feeding and just the effort to keep weight on these animals during these uh, these cold waves. Uh, a lot of the uh, animal's energy goes into just trying to stay warm rather than gaining weight. So that becomes a concern. So, yeah, we've seen the increase in stress on livestock. California farmers are harvesting 210,000 acres of wheat every year. How's the wheat faring in the Midwest? Gary Crawford has that report. The headline of one news report this week reads, Cold snap causes widespread winter kill in wheat belt. Is that true? We truly don't know. And Agriculture Department meteorologist Brad Bippy says there's really no way to know until spring. But the wheat in the central and southern plains does have some strikes against it already, including... Drought, cold wave, this lack of snow. With the plants poorly established going into the winter, put that all together... And you do have some real problems in states like Colorado, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. New 
USDA wheat condition ratings show the problems. For example, at the end of November, 10% of Oklahoma's wheat was rated in poor to very poor condition. Now, a month later, it's 42%, a fourfold increase. But again, Rippey says don't give up on the Central and Southern Plains wheat yet. History tells us, yes, there could be impacts on it. But it also tells us that favorable spring conditions can help revive a crop that has been left for dead. The combination of oranges and lemons here in California make it a top 10 commodity here. What about the Florida citrus industry? How is that being affected by the cold snap back east? Gary Crawford has the details. Folks in Georgia and even northern Florida were seeing some snow on Tuesday. And in the aftermath of a storm moving up the east coast, even colder air may be dipping down into Florida this week. And we'll be watching carefully to see just how cold it gets into Florida citrus areas. But Agriculture Department meteorologist Brad Bippy says at least right now. It does look like we'll escape with temperatures down near the freezing mark, down to the I-4 quarter, which stretches from Tampa to Orlando, and that would be sort of the expected southernmost extent of of near freezing to slightly below freezing temperatures. Implications with that type of event would be minor for citrus and also relatively minor for crops like strawberries, which can be iced in the case of of a cold wave such as this. Meanwhile, in Louisiana, sugarcane areas, uh, they've had several nights of temperatures in the lower to mid-20s. So far, probably not cold enough to do any major damage. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. The first estimates of agricultural losses from the huge Southern California wildfire totals more than $171 million. The Ventura County Ag Commissioner reports the Thomas Fire has damaged more than 70,000 acres of cropland and rangeland. Damage to buildings and equipment accounted for two-thirds of that initial monetary loss. Among the crops, avocados and lemons absorbed the worst damage. Last spring, when Sonny Perdue became the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, he immediately talked about the importance of the export market to U.S. farmers. He frequently said, You just need to know I'm a grow-it-and-sell-it kind of guy. And, of course, U.S. farmers can certainly grow it. I'm going to do my best to sell it. And in the 2017 fiscal year, the U.S. did sell quite a lot of farm products to other countries. In 2017, ag exports were $140.5 billion. That's the third highest on record and up $10.9 billion from fiscal 2016. Agriculture Department Chief Economist Rob Johan and he says a lot of the trends that helped our ag exports in 2017 will likely still be in place in this new 2018. Global GDP growth has been improving uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, and 2018 is expected to continue to go up. The value of the U.S. dollar has declined since the beginning of 2017 and expected to continue declining in 2018. And, of course, a stronger world economy and a weaker dollar both help support the sale of U.S. farm products. So here is Johansson's projection for 2018 farm exports. We forecast exports going forward into 2018 at $140 billion, slightly down from the $140.5 billion that we saw in 2017, but still a very healthy trade number that'll be the fourth highest on record. And that forecast lower because of the forecast for lower prices for some U.S. commodities, including corn and soybeans. Meanwhile, there are trade deals being discussed all around the world. NAFTA is being renegotiated. We know that the Europeans are looking to sign some new free trade agreements with Mercosur countries as well as Mexico. So those are things that we're watching, and we certainly know that the administration's eager to get better trade deals. As President Trump has said many times. American farmers and ranchers are the best, and they can compete anywhere if they're given a level playing field. They're not given that level 
playing field because of our terrible, terrible trade deals. However, it takes time to make new trade deals and get them approved by Congress. So Rob Johansson says we likely will not see any export boost in 2018 from any new trade deals or negotiations. So we are right now looking at a slight half a billion dollar downturn in the value of U.S. ag exports this year at $140 billion. But we're early in the year and things could change as they did last year. USDA early in 2017 was forecasting 2017 ag exports to hit only $133 billion. By the time the year ended, it was $7.5 billion higher than that. So anything can happen. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Here's this week's California crop report. Fields that were planted earlier in the season had signs of good growth. Most fields are irrigated due to the lack of rain to maintain growth. Planting is ongoing for wheat, other cereal grains, and forage. Black-eyed beans are being exported to Malaysia. Pruning continues in stone fruit orchards and vineyards. The persimmon harvest is ongoing. Table grapes from cold storage continues to be exported. Some older, poorly producing orchards and vineyards are being removed and prepared for replanting. Some growers prepared to apply winter dormant sprays. The navel orange harvest continues. Pomelos are being harvested. Cold overnight temperatures continue to be a concern, though, for citrus growers in the Central Valley. Olive growers continue to prune their groves. Strawberry fields continue to thrive. Pruning is ongoing in nut orchards. Pistachios, almonds, walnuts, and pecans continue to be packed and shipped primarily to foreign markets. Some older orchards were pushed out and the ground was prepped for planting. Fields are being prepared and planted with winter vegetable crops. Lettuce continues to grow well. In the already planted winter vegetable fields, the crops continue to develop. Work continued preparing tomato beds and planting onions. Carrot harvest was two weeks away. Brussels sprouts are harvested in San Mateo County now. In Tulare County, the lack of rainfall has left rangeland forage conditions rather poor. More rain was needed for germination and growth of rangeland forage. Supplemental feeding has been ongoing. Corral cleaning and dairies continues. Sheep are grazing on idle cropland, stubble fields, and dormant alfalfa fields. Bees are being moved into almond orchards in preparation for bloom season. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. The Good Fruit Newsletter reports that California's Wine Institute is celebrating passage of new tax legislation, saying it provides the first reduction in wine excise taxes in more than 80 years. As part of the sweeping tax changes led by Republicans, legislation includes a two-year version of the Craft Beverage Modernization and Tax Reform Act that's been sought by the wine industry. It does benefit wine growers in all states. Key highlights include expanding the excise tax credit for all wineries. The legislation does away with the existing phase-out based on production size and allows all wineries to claim a credit of between 53 cents and a dollar per gallon on the first 750,000 gallons of production. The total value of the full credit is $451,000 a year based on producing the full 750,000 gallons. It also allows sparkling wine to qualify for the credit. For the first time, sparkling wine is eligible to receive the tax credits as well. It also increases the alcohol by volume allowed, the ABV, for the $7 tax rate from 14% to 16% ABV. 
Wines with 14 to 16 percent ABV are currently taxed at $1.57 per gallon. They'll now be taxed at the still wine rate of $1.07. And it increases the carbonation allowed in certain low-alcohol wines, about 8.5 percent ABV or less. They'll be taxed at the $1.07 rate. But before you start popping those bottles of sparkling wine to celebrate, be aware that the tax bill's benefits for agriculture will be mostly temporary. The Agriculture.com website reports that the tax bill, written by the Republicans, would deliver near-term benefits to many ag producers, but rate reductions and estate tax changes that are beneficial to ag are temporary and bring the risk of higher taxes in the future. That, according to the accounting firm Keiko Isom. And the National Cattlemen's Beef Association said all of the positive changes are set to expire after 2025, including a doubling of the exemption from estate taxes. Well, in water news, the government giveth and the government taketh away, if you're a farmer. The Associated Press reports that the Trump administration is looking at revving up water deliveries to farmers in California's Central Valley Project. That's the largest federal water project in the United States. Environmental groups, though, are calling it a threat to protections for the struggling native salmon as well as other endangered species of fish. The U.S. Bureau of Reclamation formally served notice it would begin looking at changing the operation of the massive California water project in order to maximize water deliveries to California's Central Valley farmers. It's a first step in what would likely be an 18-month analysis. On the other hand, the California Department of Water Resources and Federal Bureau of Reclamation are taking steps to improving fish passage and rearing habitat in the Yolo Bypass with the release of a draft environmental document for the proposed Yolo Bypass Salmon Habitat Restoration and Fish Passage Project for Yolo and Sutter Counties. And what does that mean? The goal of the project is to increase the volume of water entering the Yolo Bypass, an area that floods in the winter, but it's farmed in the summer. It's an effort to pull more fish onto the bypass and create a larger floodplain area. This would allow juvenile salmon to feed in a food-rich area for a longer time when they can rapidly grow to a large size, thus improving their chances of survival as they travel to the ocean. The project would also reduce migratory delays for adults returning to their spawning grounds. Analysis of this proposed project indicates the potential for significant impacts to water quality, fisheries, agricultural resources, air quality, and noise caused by the construction or operation of some of the alternatives under consideration. And there will be public meetings on this. Wednesday, January 17th, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Woodland Community and Senior Center on East Street in Woodland. And Thursday, January 18th at the West Sacramento Community Center at 1075 West Capitol Avenue in West Sacramento. That'll be from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. Copies of this draft proposal are available online from water.ca.gov slash environmental services. Did you see the ball drop uh, on New Year's Eve? Yes, Happy New Year. Uh, and that, of course, officially uh, put 2017 to a close. But what will farmers remember about last year in general? I think 2017 will most likely be remembered as another year in this downturn of commodity prices. And of course, that's an economist talking there. USDA's chief economist, Rob Johansson, farmers in Texas and the southeast might remember 2017 a little more for those dramatic floods and hurricanes. But on the financial side for agriculture, Johansson says... If there's a, um, a silver lining, it has been with respect to 
uh, the animal production this year. Livestock producers in general did see a little bit of an upturn in their receipts, up about 7.5%. However, we did see a further erosion on the crop side of things. Yes, crop yields generally well above trend, but returns on planted acres have been at or below expected costs for those acres. Production costs went up in 2017 after two years of declines, leaving overall the ag sector income situation last year compared to 2016. Pretty flat. And leaving more farmers in more debt than in 2016. Farmers' debt load went up in 2017 about uh, $81 billion or so, 2.7 percent. More farmers then having to borrow more money to keep going. Now the question is, of course, is have producers had a harder time paying off those loans? Have we seen indicators showing that refinancing that credit is be- becoming more difficult? And we have seen certainly um, maturity rates increasing on loans that producers are taking out, which is one indicator that credit is becoming a little bit tighter. We have seen variable rates going up on those some of those loans, which ag- again indicates that lenders are requiring producers to pay a little bit more just to cover that uncertainty. And in the meantime... Producers have been using any kind of capital reserves that they had built up during the 2012-2013 record price years for commodities. Uh, We know that cash reserves have fallen by more than 70% over that time period. Johansson says as we leave 2017 behind, about 20% of U.S. farm operations are either highly or very highly leveraged. And so as we go into 2018... Those producers will have a difficult time making ends meet if they are trying to repay a lot of debt uh, and not getting the prices to do that with. Right now, USDA analysts are forecasting commodity prices in 2018 to be very close to the low prices farmers got in 2017. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. California's Department of Pesticide Regulations wants to remind schools and farmers there's a new rule. It'll affect approximately 4,100 public K-12 through schools and licensed child daycare facilities in the state. And these rules will also affect approximately 2,500 organic and conventional farmers in California. The regulation bans California's farmers from making certain pesticide applications near schools and daycare centers from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Monday to Friday, a quarter of a mile from schools and daycare centers. These include application by aircraft, air blasters, sprinklers, and most dust and powder pesticides. In addition, farmers will also be required to annually tell schools, daycare centers, and their local county ag commissioner's office in writing about the pesticides they expect to apply within a quarter mile of these schools and facilities in the upcoming year. Violators face a $5,000 fine. For ag producers, methyl bromide has been a very useful gas. It's used to fumigate situations, structures, crops, soil, etc. That was Sunny Ramaswamy, director of the National Institute of Food and Agriculture, who says the gas has been popular because it is easy to use and is very effective. Methyl bromide itself is really powerful as a pesticide. It can kill insects, it can kill fungi, it can kill bacteria, it can kill nematodes. So as a fumigant, it works really, really well. But the same compound is pretty negatively impactful on the ozone layer. The ozone layer is important because it protects humans from the sun's ultraviolet rays. The NIFA director says his agency has been funding research to look for alternatives through the methyl bromide transition program. One project involves getting rid of pests in places where there is a lot of grain. Now you got to get the ins- the insecticide to kill them in the right place. You, you know the traditional insecticides that we use that one might think of, you know, that a homeowner might spray in the yard or whatever. It doesn't get into those nooks and crannies and those crevices and things like that. That's where these insects are hiding. So what can people 
people do? The folks at Kansas State University and the USDA Agricultural Research Service scientists in Manhattan, Kansas, receive funding from us that take insecticides, our traditional insecticides, and they have developed new formulations where they can be aerosolized. Which is how it can reach pests in the nooks and crannies where they are hiding. A second example that I might share with you is in potato production. Again, we have a lot of uh, biological constraints, various types of pathogens, various types of insects, and nematodes. Nematodes have been the bane of potato production, especially in the northwestern part of the country. But researchers at Oregon State University and the University of Idaho have found that crucifer plants like broccoli are toxic to nematodes. With funding from NIFA, what scientists have ended up doing is now to figure out how best to get the, you know, sort of rotating those crops and things like that. And so the root exudate, the fluid that comes out of the roots of these crucifers, ends up releasing those compounds into the soil. And if you've got leftover nematodes from the previous potato season, those guys are going to be, you know, dead. The third example involves protecting foods like ham from pests like mites. Scientists have come up with ways to develop these coatings that you can coat that ham with. These are edible coatings, and you can get them from other fruit and vegetables and plant materials. These are not chemicals. He says the edible coatings are made from grape must and shrimp shells. You can coat your apples or you can coat your pears or whatever. You know how you want to protect those things as well. NIFA is currently accepting new applications for environmentally friendly alternatives under its methyl bromide transition program. The deadline for applications is January 30th, 2018. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Well, you better get used to it. Here's your weekly weed report. The California Department of Food and Agriculture's Cal Cannabis Program has begun accepting applications for annual commercial licenses for cultivators, nurseries, and processors. The system allows applicants to begin the registration process now, even if they don't have all their documents ready yet. During this initial application period, the program is also accepting applications for temporary license that will allow firms to operate while the annual license applications are being processed. Temporary licenses issued by the CDFA will be good for 120 days with the possibility of extensions if warranted. Temporary licenses are only issued to applicants with a valid license, permit, or other authorization from their local jurisdiction. For more information about the Cal Cannabis Program, you can visit the CDFA website, cdfa.ca.gov. The Produce Safety Rule, part of the Food Safety Modernization Act, will go into effect January 26 for farms with $500,000 or more in revenue. The Food and Drug Administration has emphasized the first year will focus less on regulation and compliance and more on education and readiness. Regardless, AFBF economist Veronica Nye says produce growers need to be ready for implementation of the complex rule. The produce safety rule sets new rules for how growers of produce have to comply in certain areas like biological soil amendments, domesticated and wild animals, worker training and health and hygiene standards, equipment, tools and buildings, and agricultural water. For those largest farms, they're going to need to start being in compliance with all of those rules, with the exception of ag water, on January 26th. Nye says it is important for all produce farms to carefully review the rule. We really encourage all of our produce growers to review the rule, go through it point by point, sign up for the on-farm readiness review, make sure that their operation is in fact 
up to code, up to standard, and ready to roll. Implementation of the rule for small farms with sales between $250,000 and $500,000, along with very small farms with sales between $25,000 and $250,000, will follow over time. Nye says those farms should watch closely how large farms manage compliance with the rule. Smaller farms will really benefit from watching how the produce safety rule is implemented on the ground and what it looks like for the larger farms. They get a little bit more time. So one more year for small farms and two more years for the very small farms. Michael Clements, Washington. If farmers want people to know the truth about their job and what they do and what they accomplish, they need to tell their own story. That's according to Ruben Navaretta, syndicated columnist with the Washington Post Syndicate, native Californian, grew up on a ranch in Central California. And he says if farmers want to get the politicians off their back, they need to tell the people exactly what they're doing. Imagine a farmer who has you know, four children, two daughters and two sons. And the farmer would love for these kids to stay in the family business. He'd prefer not to have to sell the farm that he got from his father that he spent every day putting his blood, sweat, and tears into. But he knows that in reality, because he sees what goes on with his friends at the coffee shop, that if his kids don't want to get into this business, he may have to sell. And they'll end up turning his you know, farm into another home development. Okay. But he sends the kids off to college and graduate school. And one comes back, and they study all about uh, agriculture. And they come back, they go to Davis or Fresno State, and they learn how to be a next-generation farmer. So that's good. You can keep that person in the, in the business. The daughter goes forward and she goes to law school. That's helpful, too, because you're going to be able to negotiate contracts with, with companies and the like. So that's terrific. She can contribute to the family business that way. The, the other son goes off into marketing, and that's important because that's changing all the time. You need to know different ways of selling your fruit, right? So those three things are important. My point is we've forgotten that fourth kid. We've forgotten the job that's so incredibly critical for that fourth child. The, the, the one thing that farmers are not tending to, now, no pun intended, is that fourth kid needs to go and major in communications and get a master's degree in communications and come back and help tell the story of that farm and come back and tell the story of farming. Because without communication, those other three things, the actual both the farming, the legal, the marketing are worthless. You have to go out and tell your story. Farmers don't like telling their own story. They have great stories. But again, if you don't tell your story before you know it, Democrats and Republicans are both painting a narrative that makes you into the bad guy. That's syndicated columnist Ruben Navaretta. One group that's helping local farmers tell their own stories is in Placer County where the Placer Grown YouTube page features farmers who are telling their own stories about the crops that they grow and how they market them. Helping our nation's population, especially those with little or no connection to agriculture, understand why it's so important to our quality of life has grown in significance over the last few decades. Every day, the challenge for all of us in the agriculture community is to talk about what we do and why we do it. And Genevieve O'Sullivan of Crop Life America and others connected to the ag sector say to meet this challenge, some new and traditional methods are needed to communicate the whys and hows of the farm, ranch, orchard, or agribusiness to urban residents. And as Tara Fair of CHS notes, especially those in the classroom. That is a huge emphasis, is educating the next generation about agriculture and the opportunities that exist for them, even within those urban populations. I'm Rod Bain, and connecting the farm to urban Americans is the subject of this edition of Agriculture USA. 
The nation's most recognized farm broadcaster has been telling the story of agriculture for almost 60 years. Yet several people may forget that a fair share of Orion Samuelson's audience comes from the Windy City itself and many urban and suburban areas around Chicago. There are new families born every day and they don't have the foggiest idea where their food comes from or how it gets there. So it's a never-ending process. Yet Orion, better than most, understands the challenge of conveying ag and how it impacts everyday life to urban residents, especially at a time when less than 2% of our nation's population are ag producers. He remains undaunted in his mission, though, as are others in their efforts to break down ag from farm to table and all points in between to those living in the cities and suburbs. After all, many of those residents, more than ever, want to know about their food and where it comes from. University of Florida horticultural researcher Kevin Folta says that connection starts not with facts or emotions, but by developing trust, which farmers can do through conversation, beginning by sharing their ethics. Why we do what we do, our training, our commitment, our values. And this is where farmers totally got it in huge excess. With trust between farmer and consumer, urban or not, further strengthened by discussing their common, shared values. The reason I do this is because I'm really concerned about keeping farmers in business, plenty of food for folks in the developing world, helping the American consumer have a better diet and better access to more kinds of foods, and doing it all with environmental sustainability. And it's important to establish that at the beginning of these conversations. We're all in this together. We all want the same thing. Connection also means shared experiences, regardless of scale or location. As Brad Greenway of the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance points out, growing a backyard garden, running an urban hoop house, or harvesting hundreds of acres are in reality the same thing. Anytime you can give them a connection to the food, I think is a good thing. You've got that garden and what it takes to keep that plant alive and healthy and to grab that first tomato off of there. What we need to show is, okay, that's on a smaller scale. That would maybe be enough for your family or a classroom. And it's no different. It still shows what the care that you have to take care of your crops or your animals, whatever it is, on a larger scale so that we can feed a growing population. Social media use as an ag education tool for urban consumers continues to increase. Genevieve O'Sullivan of CropLife America understands the growth in video-based web platforms among those considered millennials and younger, both for education and entertainment. From that came a video campaign called Give a Crop, C-R-O-P. We launched that really as a way to reach out and start the conversation about why farmers would need to use pesticides. They're humorous videos and so we really wanted it to resonate for pretty much anybody who just happened upon them. We like the idea of someone saying, hey, these are pretty funny and sharing them and that's kind of what we've gotten. We have upwards of approximately 60,000 or more views on those and that is strictly through platforms such as Twitter and Facebook. The outreach in telling the story of ag to urban America includes the classrooms in our nation's cities. Terra Fair talks about a new video-based curriculum created by the CHS Foundation and University of Minnesota called Agricultures. We have a team and they're going to travel all over the U.S. and internationally to interview folks that are involved in agriculture and help tell the story of how food is grown and all the different facets that go into that. An educator in an urban area can take the videos and then take the curriculum that goes along with them to teach that agriculture concept in a really unique way. Orion Samuelson closes by emphasizing what he believes is the best, most tried method to communicate agriculture to an urban audience, face-to-face -face interaction. Urban markets, farmers markets, very important to giving farmers and their consumers an opportunity to meet. And farmers have a lot of believability when they talk about how they produce food and the care they give the livestock and the environment.
This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The State Water Efficiency and Enhancement Program, also known as SWEEP, provides financial assistance to California's farmers for irrigation systems that help reduce greenhouse gases as well as saving water. SWEEP has had a positive effect on Seth Rosso's family-owned farm, Rosso Farms, down in Merced. He explains. So what we have growing here is bell peppers. We have a total of 57 acres of bell peppers. All of it goes for cannery, none of it is for fresh market. We also have 94 acres of uh, cannery tomatoes, and we also have 30 acres of organic grain corn. My wife plays a significant role in our family operation. We try to once a week walk fields together, and she comes from a farming background, and she has great input. She has a lot of wisdom. When I was a little boy, I would ride equipment with my dad's uh, custom farming operation as he would go and harvest black beans and thin sugar beets, and I'd ride the tractor with him, and I just had a passion for agriculture and feeding the world. You never know the challenges that you're going to face in agriculture, and uh, you think that we have a consistent climate here in San Joaquin Valley, California, and, and you know, in 2015, we transplanted our bell peppers, the first bell pepper crop we ever had, and uh, a couple weeks later, it was in May, and we got hailed on and almost lost the entire field, and a half mile away, I had tomatoes that didn't even get rain on, and so even within the San Joaquin Valley, there's significant differences in weather, and then also pests can be the same. You can have a, a lot of worms in one field and a half mile away you have none. The sweep program has made a significant impact on my business because I don't necessarily have the financial resources to make large capital improvements such as drip irrigation systems or automating the drip irrigation systems or putting in uh, soil moisture probes that help me become more efficient and it's significantly impacted my business by uh, helping us catapult into a more efficient stage and we've been able to grow higher value crops because of this. So in 2015, we knew we had to make some changes with uh, getting more yield with less water and drip irrigation has helped us significantly with that. We do happen to have our sprinklers out here because of the heat that we've been experiencing the three days in a row of 109 bell peppers do not like, especially when they're flowering and trying to set fruit. So this is the computer that controls the automation that Sweep funded for us. So this will control each of my pressure regulators in uh, our field to turn on and off how often I tell it to. And the biggest thing that we had noticed once we installed soil moisture sensors is after about 45 minutes to an hour of running our drip tape, water was not going up anymore and it was only going down because the gravitational forces overwhelmed the um, capillary reaction of moving water up. So with installing a computer system, I'm able to pulse irrigate pulsing little sets, I'm able to control the moisture and move it up to where I want to, to feed the, the top roots. Us young people, we assume that the technology will make up for experience, but that's just not true sometimes. There's an app that I can see what my moisture is in my fields, but you know, uh, the best thing that I learned at uh, Cal Poly was the biggest thing that you need to see in a field to be a success is your own shadow. Sweep came into time that there was a big drought and there was a really big need for higher efficiency of water use, but there's a significant need for it even with a lot of water in our dams. We still have much room for improvement and we need to conserve what water we do have in our dams so we can leave more in them for the next year in case there is a drought again. And Sweep has enabled that to be done. 
with Seth Rossow of Rossow Farms in Merced. For more information about the SWEEP program, visit the website cdfa.ca.gov, then enter the word SWEEP into the search box. Congress mandates that USDA hold a census of agriculture every five years. It's a massive undertaking. So any massive undertaking requires a lot of resources. Every five years is about right in the sense that, you know, what we can do in terms of getting it done. That was Barbara Rader, director of the National Agricultural Statistics Services Census and Survey Division. USDA is mailing out about three million questionnaires to farmers and ranchers all around the country. It's important that you maintain some questions the same for comparability. So you can't measure change if you don't have consistency across census periods. Local foods was one emerging trend addressed in the 2012 Ag Census that Rader says is apparently here to stay. This time we're asking questions about local foods, but we've added an additional question to find out what kind of marketing channels those that produce local foods are using so that we can get a little bit more in depth. The Ag Census also is focusing on people. We are going to put special emphasis this time on the contribution of all the people involved on the farm. She gives some details. Up to four people, or before we used to gather it for three, so up to four people involved in the day-to-day decisions on the farm. We're not only going to capture who those people are, but what their contribution is, whether they're involved in the marketing of the products or in the decisions of when to plant. USDA worked with the National Academy of Sciences to determine the best number. The questions are designed to find out, for example, what is the role of women on the farm? Women have always been involved in farming and significantly involved, but we're hoping with these additional questions we'll be able to better capture that. Or whether veterans that are now getting involved in in agriculture and in farming, you know, to what extent, and new and beginning farmers. Ag producers can complete the questionnaires and mail them back or go online to www.agcensus.usda.gov to fill out a convenient online version. The deadline is February 5th, 2018. So 2017 will allow us to see what changes the agricultural sector has undergone, as well as allow other USDA agencies to see if the programs they put in place, let's say five years ago, they can measure the effectiveness of those programs or see that they have to adapt them or even develop new programs. Most importantly, the Ag Census is one way for farmers and ranchers to make sure their voices are heard especially as USDA starts preparing for the next Census of Agriculture in 2022. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. California growers of Kling peaches face a volatile future due to mounting challenges from increased labor costs as well as stiff price competition from China, Greece, and Chile. That according to the California Canning Peach Association. California grows nearly all the nation's Kling peaches. They're used mainly for canning and baby food. In a bid to secure the future of the crop, growers are turning increasingly to mechanized harvesting. That's to lower labor costs. And they're focusing on high quality as well as advocating a buy American provision for the school lunch program purchases to drive up demand. The Agriculture Department's Farmer's Market in Washington, D.C., the final, or should I say the fennel, frontier. The Latin name for fennel means little hares. Well, that's appetizing. You're always there with the vital information. That's Laura Popilski. Uh, we are at the farmer's market in the Veducation tent, and I have to say I need Veducation on this one. It really is uh, where I've never gone before. First, I'm looking at this fennel plant that uh, you have here. It's and beautiful, right? Well, I wouldn't say that. Uh, oh, I think all vegetables are beautiful. Yeah, well, it looks like a weed to me. Big, long, fluffy, uh, what you would call fronds on top. Looks a little like a dill plant, a stem that looks a little like celery, and a bulb at the bottom of 
looks a little like a flattened onion. Now, the only thing else I know about fennel, and this again is not that appetizing, is that it is sometimes used to uh, help with flavor in toothpastes. Yeah, so the flavor of fennel is kind of an anise licorice flavor. And although it's not very popular in the U.S., fennel is a popular flavor in European sweets and beverages. Okay, so what can a person uh, in this country do with this thing besides uh, make uh, toothpaste? The fronds you can use as a garnish. They're very tasty. Ah, so viva la fronds, I guess. Now, uh, I have seen fennel in the grocery store, uh, not the whole plant, just the bulb part. So uh, what can you do with this thing here? You can use it raw. A lot of people like using it in a slaw or just eating it as is, dipping it in hummus or other veggie dips. Okay, but you've got a little stove out here and you have been telling folks here it is uh, better cooked, right? It brings out a little bit less of that bright licorice anise flavor that some people don't like and has a much sweeter flavor to it when you cook it. So you could braise it with uh, kidney beans and chicken stock. You could roast it alongside of potatoes and other root vegetables. You could saute it like I'm doing today. I cut the fennel and my onions to be kind of nice long slices. So they're about the same size. I'm going to caramelize my fennel with onions, butter, oil, salt, parsley, and Parmesan cheese to top it off. Caramelize means? Slowly cooking it until it gets very loose and soft and almost sweet. I'm going to finish off this caramelized fennel and onions with some parsley, Parmesan cheese, and a little bit of lemon juice. The fennel finale. Does it smell good? Mm, not, not bad. I think so. Yeah. Uh, is it ready? Are we ready to eat this? It's not fennelly done yet. Ah, fennelly done. Oh, but we are. So for a couple of more interesting recipes, go online to What's Cooking USDA. What's Cooking USDA and uh, type in... F-E-N-N-E-L. That's right. And no, there's not a recipe for fennel cake. In Washington, this is Gary Crawford trying to report something for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at kste.com.